podcast is created by Laura Jackson and Jonathan Stevens of Local Jurisdiction Consulting. The episode starts now. This episode was recorded on March 9th, 2020 at 6.45 p.m. Eastern Time. In this episode, we cover the two sensations rocking the globe, COVID-19, dubbed the coronavirus, and the turmoil in the stock market, and the links between the two. This episode was released the following day. As ever, please check out our website, www.localjurisdictionconsulting.com, localjurisdictionconsulting.com. The episode starts now. Um, I just got an alert sent to my phone that says that President Trump announces that he will ask Congress to approve a payroll tax set and relief for hourly workers to combat the economic fallout of the coronavirus. Wow. Anywho, breaking news. Oh, he's here. Hi, Hi this is Jonathan Stevens. Oh, sorry, I cut you off. Do you want to do a clean entry? <laughs> Hi, this is Jonathan Stevens. Laura Jackson. Okay, I actually just got a ping to my phone literally like four minutes ago. It says President Trump announces he will ask Congress to approve a payroll tax cut and relief for hourly workers to combat the economic fallout of coronavirus. So, so I think I heard the what was part of that press conference maybe or some related press conference on the radio just now. I heard Mike Pence talking in his usual North Korean way of absurdly overpraising Trump for restricting travel and doing other things that, while they may or may not have helped reduce the inflow of virus, were utterly useless when we weren't testing anybody in this country for the virus. Yeah. So my dad has a friend who was supposed to be flying to Germany and apparently, for air travel, only way to get into Germany is, I guess, they're having everyone fly into Munich instead of, like, you know, all the airports around Germany for any right. travel to be open. Yeah. So he actually ended up canceling his trip. Well, his flight got canceled, but he ended up canceling his trip, and that airline actually refunded him, which is great. Well, that's, that, well let's find out what airline that was and make an effort to patronize them in the future. Yeah, it's a German um, airline. It's whichever one he was flying on. Lufthansa, probably. I can I can get back to you later on this evening yeah. um, with more details on that. But I thought that was interesting. You know, I thought Trump would, you know, instead of saying, we can still fly, it's A-OK, instead of advising people to turn off their TV, I would actually have done the no air travel because the private airlines are going to do that anyway. I mean, Boeing is like praying to not you know mess anything up it's like the airlines don't want another yeah boeing is they don't want another scandal i mean boeing is boeing airline but it's they don't need another headline to make people be afraid so a basic sort of a very finance 101 about airlines is that they are heavily leveraged they borrow a lot of money 
to to buy their fleets of airplanes and their other capital investments and or they're in structured leasing agreements which are essentially like being in debt and that's how Boeing and Airbus and a few smaller companies sell all these expensive airplanes that are a huge percentage of high-end manufacturing in America and Europe and even in, in South America are just those two aerospace companies and a couple of smaller ones. And so as soon as airlines start to lose passengers and they lose that revenue coming in, they quickly are unable to pay these hefty lease and debt service fees. And so they literally can't buy more airplanes. And because the financing is often arranged in part through companies like Boeing that made the airplane, they're still getting payments. And so then they're going to lose payments on the, the, the stuff that they've sold or leased already, and then they're not going to get any new orders. Mm-hmm. And, and as you alluded to, they're already in trouble for their, their 737 MAX they has to ground, which was, by the way, the most popular, highly produced, and highly bought passenger jet in the world. That was the, world, the, the global airline's workhorse plane. Uh, they made... Boeing makes a thousand airplanes a year, roughly, and the vast majority of them were 737 Maxes. Well, and we're seeing a lot that obviously the stock market and the coronavirus are linked. Yeah, it's just that's just one way in which this is taking out the economy, and you know, Trump's solution of a payroll tax cut is absurd because people's problem isn't that they're making lots of money and they have too much tax burden, their problem is they're not going to be able to go to work. They're not going to get hours. They're not going to get shifts. A payroll tax cut doesn't help you if you are not getting paid. Do you think the airlines not flying led to the drop in oil prices at all? Like, So I, I, oil prices were already dropping. Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on that link. If there is a link or if they're totally separate, we can get back to it in a different um, – They're connected. So there, 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 were, there are three things going on here, or maybe even four. One was tell – us, Tell us, Johnny Mike. One was there was a little bit of a, of a slowdown in demand anyway for oil and a lot of production to come online. So supply okay. up, demand, if not down, then steady. Prices had started to drift down. Then some big investment funds made a big deal about how they wanted to move away from fossil fuels, not because they're, they're super good, pure people, but because they think that that's the way of the past and that the, the, the economy going forward is going to have to move away from fossil fuels, so it's just not a great long-term investment. We can argue about whether that's true or not just from a pure greed point of view, but that's what some of these big funds said. So that hurt the price of oil and, and oil companies. And then when the coronavirus started to hit, the thing that you said absolutely happened, which is there's less trains which run on diesel. There's less airplanes running on jet fuel. There's less buses and cars and ships, all of which mostly run on stuff that um, is made there's of oil. There's less community transportation. Exactly. Mo- it's not all oil. There are other way- there are electric vehicles there, but the vast majority of transportation in the world is still dependent on oil products. 
And so that reduced demand. So then the price of oil went down even more. So from all the things I said, it took the price of oil down from 60 to like the mid to high 40s of dollars per barrel. There are different kinds of oil that have different prices, but that gets the idea across. And then this past weekend, Saudi Arabia, who are actually recently the United States has been the biggest producer of oil in the world, but Saudi Arabia, the biggest swing producer, they can they can crank they can up. Turn it on. Yeah, they can turn on and turn it off. Mm-hmm. They have the Great Lakes of oil at their disposal. That's right. It's easy for them to just crank up the pumps or shut them off. And so they um, really impact world markets. I think we all know that. But yes, every, that's the reason why we care so much about. <laughs> that's the reason why we care so much about Saudi Arabia and the Middle East in general, Saudi Arabia in particular. And that's still true even today. It's a little bit less true than it was in the 70s, but it's still very true. And Saudi Arabia and Russia and some American companies and a bunch of other players were involved in, in, in an ongoing tussle over the oil, oil com- competition in the oil markets. And for one reason or another, the Saudis decided what they were going to do is try to punish their competitors and drive some of them out of business and put a hurt on them by driving the price of oil really, really low. Are there uh, competitors uh, groups in Russia? Cause well, Russia's a competitor, but Russia can withstand low oil prices for a while, too, although it'll hurt them. So that's why those two are the two driving actors in oil prices. Yeah, yeah, the American producers are connected to this, though, because what the Russians didn't like is that the reason that the Saudis were saying all – so Russia's not part of OPEC. That's the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. It's a cartel. I'm glad you brought that up because I had a vague understanding of OPEC, and I did – I'm glad you connected that. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a cartel. It's a con- because you're very sophisticated and very knowledgeable of all these subjects, but the whole point is we're trying to gain, get the knowledge out to the greater world. Right. So OPEC is a cartel, so it's sort of a formal open conspiracy to fix prices, or in this case, fix production. So they all get together, and Saudi Arabia is the big dog. And they're, they're, I have a you know, question. Yeah. So it's kind of like instead of, you know, how – in real estate, brokers cannot fix prices. It's kind of like let's make sure that we're the brokers are brokers of oil are kind of fixing prices. Correct, correct. So within most Western countries, like the United States, there are laws to prevent various business actors from doing this sort of thing in private industry. But because these are nation states. These are nation states exactly. doing it internationally. And so it, what they do is they decide how much oil they're going to produce. And there's, there's so many shades of gray in this. A lot of countries, especially Iran, tend to cheat. They say, oh, they're only going to do 2 million barrels, and then they do 2.5 or 3 or whatever. And Saudi Arabia knows that the other countries do this, and they sort of tolerate it, and sometimes they crack down. And there's a lot of intrigue and political – there's a lot of intrigue and in politics that swirls around the internal workings of OPEC. Russia is another big oil exporter. They are not part of OPEC, but recently they had been cooperating with OPEC and working with OPEC to fix production quotas, so amounts that they're going to agree to pump of oil – because Russia deemed it to be in Russia's interest to do that. 
But then what started to happen is the Americans and the Canadians figured out how to frack shale formations and get oil where previously it wasn't really gettable. And that's is that in their own respective nations? They mostly, yes. That in the United States or in the ocean territory of the United States is like correct. That's why there's a big oil boom in well was until recently a big oil boom in North Dakota, for example. Which, which? North Dakota and Colorado and and places like oh, that that we didn't know. we didn't formally think of as oily places. So the shale produced oil. It works. You get oil out, but it's more it's, it's more expensive to get it out than it is in Saudi Arabia or Russia, and then what they call traditional oil, where you just drill a hole straight down in, into the ground into an oil reservoir that's usually in a geological formation called a salt dome. So, so what was happening is because the Americans were make were producing so much more oil to the point where we used to depend on oil imports in this country, and now we really don't. In fact, in some recent years, we've been an oil export nation ourselves, which is not which was not the case throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s. And so all the drill, baby, drill, and all that stuff uh, back in those days, we were very dependent on foreign oil. That that's not really so true anymore. But we do. We are still at the mercy of what they can do to the prices, even though we have but enough to supply ourselves. Americans, because weren't a lot of Americans then brought on board in the 70s and 80s? You know, when America was using oil, a lot of citizens bought into that too. So there's an American interest for the consumers in oil. Yeah, that's right. And I think we t- we still tend to think of oil as this thing that we buy from the Middle East. But the truth is we now produce enough of it in the United States that if the Middle East stopped selling us oil tomorrow, we would still have enough oil to function. The issue really is that the Middle East, Saudi Arabia in particular, uh, still controls the price of oil. And so it used to be the case in the 70s and 80s that the thing that hurt the American economy was when the price of oil went up because we needed to import it. But now that we mostly – we actually export a little and we mostly have enough for ourselves – uh, there are a lot of people who make their living either directly working in oil fields, making the machines that do the oil stuff, all the way down to the little diners and shops that service those towns. A big part of our economy is based on that. And when so oil how does is the world market, how does the world price of oil say impact Alaskan families? Because I know they rely a lot on oil subsidies. That's right. That's right. Subsidies rely on the price, the world price of oil, correct? That's correct. So it's equally true of towns in North Dakota that have had big booms and everybody's got jobs because the oil company came in. Alaskan oil is relatively cheap to get out of the ground. So it's probably still worth it to pump that Alaskan oil, but they don't make nearly the profit that they do. So in Alaska, you get kind of a negative state tax called a, a dividend. And it, it, when oil prices are high, people in Alaska get big checks from the government every year. When oil prices are low, they get very small checks. So in a sense, it, it acts like almost a tax on the people of Alaska. But in places like North Dakota and Colorado, what's going to happen is these boom towns will shut down because the shale oil – is is much more expensive to get out of the ground and if oil is only 25 or 30 dollars a barrel 
it literally that's less than the cost of getting a barrel of oil out of the ground in those circumstances. So the companies will simply stop doing it because it would lose money. They'll lose less money if they shut down than if they keep pumping that oil. And what had happened is that basically Saudi Arabia had been telling Russia and other countries, but Russia's the other, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the United States are the big 800-pound gorillas of world oil production. And basically Saudi Arabia was telling Russia, you have to pump less because these American companies are pumping oil and we don't want there to be too much oil make the price go too low. And Russia said, well, forget that. We're not going to give up our market share of the oil market to these companies in this country that's basically our enemy. So had they stopped, sorry, cooperating with OPEC? So Russia said they weren't going to cooperate with OPEC anymore, and they were just going to pump as much as they wanted, which would make prices go lower than OPEC wanted. That gave OPEC two choices. One, keep prices high by cutting their own production more than they wanted to. Well, I guess three choices. Two, just keep doing what they're doing and let the price of oil go down somewhat. Or three, what they've done, which is Saudi Arabia say, okay, Russia, you want to play that game. We can play too, and we can play a lot harder than you. So we're going we're gonna to basically try to punish you. It's like an economic sanction. We're going to punish your economy by driving the main driver of Russia's economy is their oil exports. It is their main source of foreign currency. So Saudi Arabia is saying, we have enough money saved up. Our oil is so cheap to pump that we can still make money selling it for $20 a barrel. We're going to do that. Not only is Saudi Arabia pumping more, they're actually selling it below the market price to refineries. Oh, wow. And so what this has done is we already have a very fragile global economy and a damaged stock market because of a pandemic locking up economic activity all over the world. And now the biggest swing producer and most powerful controller of oil prices has basically destroyed the, the, for temporarily the oil industry in large parts of the world, including large parts of the American oil industry. And so what happened, uh, this happened over the weekend. And so when the stock markets opened in Asia this morning, there was near panic selling. And that, that spilled over into the American stock market today, which is not and surprising. Could you comment on what Japan's stock market did over, was it over the weekend or was it earlier this morning or was it Friday? But basically, didn't Japan pretty much close trading down in their stock market? Yeah, so that both and that also happened in the United States today. Most modern countries, uh, you know, sophisticated countries with sophisticated capital markets, have a rule um, that that came about because of a stock market crash in America in the 80s, where if if the market goes down too much all at once, they will temporarily stop trading. Now there there are a couple reasons for this. One is that when prices start to plummet that fast. Uh, even in the days of modern electronics, it can be hard to, in computers. It can be hard for anybody but the most sophisticated, and sometimes even the most sophisticated uh, financial institutions, to keep up with the prices. Um, because a lot of stock trading now is done by computer algorithms that do it way faster than any human can keep up with. So, you know, you could even look at the number flashing across your 
your computer screen in Google Finance, and, 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 and during a market crash, it might be five minutes out of date. Well, the market might have moved 3% in five minutes, and your stock or whatever you're looking at could have gone up or down 10%. And so part of it is just that practical aspect that when the market moves that much, you have to stop it and let everybody catch up to what the new reality is. And the hope is that when you do that, both because people won't make additional mistaken panic sales because they don't know what the situation is and because they'll have a little time to reflect, the hope is that that will prevent irrational crashes of markets. And, and, and it seemed to actually serve its function today, which is that um, things were really bad and uh, they were going down fast. Uh, but if you looked at what had happened in Asia and some other places, um, it didn't look like there was good reason for things to go down as much as they did in 1929 or 1987, at least not all at once. And so this morning, stock market opened it almost immediately, within about 15 minutes, it fell to the first point at which they stopped trading. They stopped trading for 15 minutes. Everybody caught up to the new prices. During that first 15 minutes of trading, as I can tell you from my own experience, you could not even get price quotes uh, from most of the financial websites. Crashed. There was no way to even know what your stocks were buying and selling for. Uh, they stopped, so they pulled. They, they it hit. It went down 7.5 percent. That's the point at which the first quote-unquote circuit breaker is thrown, um, and they stopped trading for for 15 or 30 minutes. I forget which. So you're saying the stock market? Well, to re to reiterate. To stop confusion about what the prices of things actually are, and also in theory, in the yeah, oh, in theory, to give people time to calm down and collect themselves. And today it worked. They stopped the trading for I think it's 15 minutes. It might be 30, but it doesn't really matter. They stopped the trading. People caught up to where the prices were, and it didn't. It even it even went up from that low point some and then kind of settled about back at it but it did not keep crashing downward crazily so, so the system actually worked today okay and it worked for you as well uh well i i i suppose i mean in as much as it worked for anybody it allowed me to get somewhat better information uh, the retail investor, the average Joe and Jane sitting there with their online account or, or calling into a broker does not really get good access. It's one of the many ways in which someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders would rightly say the system is rigged. The, the average Joe and Jane doesn't really get access to the actual markets right as they're happening. And in normal times when you're just poking money, in your IRA or your 401k or taking money out to buy a house or something, it doesn't really matter. But when things are zooming up and down, the the big boys, the big Wall Street fat cats privilege themselves heavily at your expense if you're an ordinary investor. 
and you will find that you, you cannot reach people and you don't get good prices, meaning you don't even get the same prices that the bigger investors get, and it's not just a few pennies difference. It may be a few dollars difference per, you know, share. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible. Um, and Your so my my investment broker and his assistant were out of town that caused me some particular difficulties but that was true even of people i knew who used very large companies that had thousands and thousands of brokers they had to wait on the phone for an hour to talk to somebody uh to to iron out their their things they were trying to do and in that time the market moved in various ways um, that may have been bad for them. Now, generally speaking, if you're a long-term investor, there's little good to come out of panic selling in the middle of a crash. It's not something you should do, but um, sometimes people have taken out investment positions that go up when the market goes down, and they're kind of like insurance policies, and they're looking to cash in. So, just because someone's frantically calling their stockbroker during a market downturn doesn't mean that they're trying to do something stupid. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, to bring it back home, I guess, to how we started this, any coronavirus updates? Well, let's see. Uh, I, you know, there are various tidbits we hear, like that the head of the New York, New Jersey Port Authority has the coronavirus. We heard yesterday that a prominent um, Episcopalian minister in uh, the rector of a very prominent church in Washington, D.C., uh, has a coronavirus. And, and had crews have put themselves on self-quarantine. Correct. And so, uh, you know, like you said, we have members of Congress self-quarantining. There was an article I read, I think, in the Washington Post that said that um, members of Congress were, to put it simplistically, getting scared, which I think um, is reasonable, and I'm frankly surprised they weren't scared before. And, uh, you know, there's anecdotal well, reports, yeah, like you, you told us about your dad's friend who couldn't fly to Germany. Yeah, um, but the Congress people are older people, you know, who want to – serve their constituents, but also don't want, like, the risk of contracting this pandemic, this disease. That's right. The, the median age of a United States congressperson is 59. And the Congress is, you know, unfortunately, still, I think, about three-quarters male. Yeah. At least if you count the Senate. And the U.S. House, maybe slightly more, but I think it's roughly three-quarters male. So you have men whose median age is 59. That is a higher-risk group, and these are people who are shaking hands and going to events and doing things like that all the time. Well, my gram is not going to be coming for the birth of her great-grandson, which will be happening um, in the next week or two. Uh, she's just going to stay away, especially with cases that are in Fairfax, Virginia, and Fort Belvoir, Virginia. My gram, who is in Ohio, is just going to stay there. So yeah, die down. The, I, that's for an 85-year-old person, even though somebody in good health, that's, that's probably very prudent. And 
I, no one should delude themselves that just because there hasn't been an officially confirmed case in their neighborhood or their town, um, there are very few places. You know, if you live in the Alaskan or Montana wilderness, you might still not be in contact with any sort of people who might have the coronavirus. But if you live pretty much anywhere that's not deep, deep rural wilderness, the likelihood is that if not already, then very, very soon people near you will have it. And if you think that that's not going to happen or that you don't face any risk, you're deluding yourself. And if you're a very young, very healthy person who's at relatively low risk of getting severely sick, you need to remember that there are older people, there are people with health problems and compromised immune systems. And if you go about being very devil-may-care and not taking precautions, you're putting all these other people at risk. So, Jonathan, you wrote an article called The Importance of Protecting Our Elections During a Pandemic, which was posted to BlueVirginia.us. But how about you, since there is an election that will be happening tomorrow on March 10th in Michigan, um, how about you just tell us some of the safe techniques that you talked about in the article? What is social distancing? Right. So I think it's Michigan, Arkansas. No, no, Arkansas was last time. Michigan, Missouri, Mississippi, and, and a couple other states. It's several states. Washington State. Social distancing means don't shake hands. Don't stand right up. Don't shake hands. Don't do the little French cheek kiss thing. Don't hug people. And, and it's terrible. Um, you know, it, it runs against our instincts. Just today... I was out having a little fun at the golf course, and when you're done playing a few holes of golf, you're supposed to shake hands with the people you play with. And I I had to be a bit rude and sort of step back and say, oh, you know, social distancing and chuckle and hope that they got it, which they mostly did. But we have many rituals of hugging and handshaking and things like this in this country and in many countries, many cultures. And social distancing means you don't do that, and you stand at least six feet away from people, if at all possible. We that, recommend natural gloves. Well, I think if people are, you know, I think people want to think about latex or nitrile gloves. If, if when they're, that's an easy way. If you're going in to vote, you know, and some some folks won't like the idea of people taking visible precautions. They think it will offend people, but. I think we are rapidly moving into it. And physical safety is important. Your own physical safety, other people's safety is important. And I think, frankly, the, the emotional signals are going to very quickly switch from that's icky and it scares me to thank goodness that other person is taking precaution. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, wouldn't like it if you, you don't like it if your doctor doesn't wash her hands before she examines you. We don't like it if the person in Subway doesn't wear gloves whenever they're preparing our food, you know. Right. The person in the restaurant, in the the sandwich shop preparing your food, all these things. Well, it's the same thing. So I I think quickly that will change to people feeling better about it. I would say if you're going in to vote, it's probably not a terrible idea to, to wear gloves for touching all these things. If you're wearing gloves, then you can shake hands with somebody. If you have a pre-existing condition and your polling location allows for drive-through voting, now is the time where you can totally exercise that. I 
don't believe you need to prove um, your illness or condition to do voting that way. Right. I mean, the laws are going to vary on all these things from state to state. But if you can do absentee voting, if you can do vote, yeah, absentee voting by mail, that's ideal. The fewer Everybody should vote, but the fewer people who show up on Election Day standing in lines, standing near each other, feeling socially pressured to shake hands and do other things, the better it's going to be. Yeah. The episode has now concluded. All right. Thanks, guys. Be sure to check us out at localjurisdictionconsulting.com, localjurisdictionconsulting.com. All right. Have a good one.